0: This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. Now in the stressful times that we're facing today, it's understandable that some of us are struggling with a few things and the thought of trying to deal with this while still trying to maintain that you're the best that you can be for those who are close to you. Well, it can be difficult and sometimes it can seem like a bit of a mountain. Every one of us needs help sometimes. So if there is that something that's stopping you from achieving any goals that you have, or is just generally interfering with your happiness and well-being, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp assesses whatever needs that you have to get yourself back on track, and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist from its vast array of skill set professionals, all of whom are specialised in all manner of issues, from relationship or family conflicts, right through to things like depression and stress, for professional counselling for you. And just to clarify, This isn't self-help that's being advocated here. In less than 24 hours, you can be communicating with a therapist selected to best help you in a safe and convenient, confidential online environment with a service that's available for clients worldwide, a much more affordable one than any traditional offline counselling, and one that even offers financial aid available for the service if it's needed, and has support functions that you may not even be able to find available to you locally. You can get in touch with your counsellor whenever you want to. You can schedule weekly telephone or video sessions with them if you wish. And the responses that you'll get back from them will be timely and thoughtful. And all without the uncomfortable feeling that goes with sitting around in a waiting room. Because nobody likes that sensation, do they? It's so much better than that. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's com forward slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier one-person, North Wales-based true crime podcast, in which one enthusiast and his cat seek out to bring for your listening the usually more often forgotten and obscure tales of true crime, often horrendous and sometimes unbelievable, from the recesses of the UK and Ireland. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, It's bugger all without you guys though, the enthusiasts who keep the show ticking over and me striving to bring it to you. And as the episode finds you, I hope that it finds you and all of yours all good, all safe and all well. So as the episode is, I am just a couple of days back from the very first UK CrimeCon and I had an absolute blast at it. It was great once again meeting fellow hosts that I've had the pleasure of meeting before. And it was wonderful as well to meet people who've become great friends of the show over time for the very first time as well. I got books that I've loved for many years signed by some of the authors. And myself and the other show hosts talked about a great deal of exciting collaborative stuff. Watch this space is all I can say. But most of all that I'm taking away from it, I got to meet so many lovely people who listened to the show and who happily gave up their crime time to come and talk to me about it. It's thanks to you guys that I was even there, and the privilege was all mine to speak to you, believe me. From the bottom of my heart, thank you all. That goes for the guests, the fellow hosts, and the event staff and the organisers. You made it an absolute blast of a weekend for me that I really loved, and roll on the next one. See you there in June next year. Now whilst I was there over the weekend also, it was the True Crime Enthusiast podcast's fourth birthday. Four years is just out of this world. I can't even begin to describe what that either feels like or means. It really is mind-bending. Nothing else can come close to describing it, believe me. Now in that time I've met so many wonderful and supportive people, I've had the privilege of doing things like CrimeCon, it's even leading to the first book from the show coming out a bit later this year. So what else can I say except thank you so much all for making that happen for me, it means the world and more and I'm perpetually grateful. So as has become tradition, for the show's birthday each time around I always share one of the bonus Patreon episodes for everybody as a bit of a thanks one that's voted for on title alone in a poll that I place up on the show's Facebook discussion group. There was a clear winner this year, so after a bit of adapting, this is the episode that you shall be having this time around, and I'm back properly with the regular show a couple of weeks into October after my break. What can I say, Thriller was a bit of a killer. I will be back before then of course with this month's new Patreon episode, which leads me lovely into the thanks and shout outs that are going out this time around. And I know I've got a bit of catching up to do here after the weeks that I've had off. But shout outs to new supporters, Barry Griffin, Nancy Crandall, Sam Collins, Amy, Anthony Ellis, Mandy Belshaw, John Wallace, Nancy Perro, Chloe, Sean Tarrant, Debbie Riches, Ben, Alan Beresford, Sarah Milligan, and Christopher Haywood, plus Nikki Walkley, Wesley Dupont, Robin DeAndrea Bishop, Deb Thompson, Jennifer Lowry, Maria Wilson, Janine Cordill, Aaron Donnellan, and Samantha who have opted to annually support the show and massive apologies if I pronounced anybody's name wrong there. It's so massively kind of you all to do and I thank you so much for it. Now if like these kind folks you fancy a bit of extra enthusiast then it's incredibly simple to do and it really won't break the bank. You just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. You find the same logo and all of that. And then Iranu, quicker than a filling station runs out of petrol right now. Because what absolute bollocks that is, isn't it, eh? You can be joining in with these guys I've mentioned and hearing a whole series worth of unreleased bonus tales for yourself. From the strange events behind The Mystery of Letham Street or The Cannibal and the Cowboy Right through to the outright horror of the tales behind Disfigured or to kill and kill again, to name just a few. There are all sorts in there. And who knows, I may even be sending you a pack up out of some show goodies. It's completely up to you guys. And you don't even have to look it up on Patreon. There's an ever present link that will take you right to it in the episode show notes this time and every time around. The tale that was voted for this time around then. Ripper in the Making, was a case that I covered for an episode just after the show's third birthday in October of last year. It's a horrendous tale, as I just said, one that was topical as it came out here on the show, and one that takes us back to Leicestershire in the early 1980s. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, as a thanks from me to getting the show into year five, please join the true crime enthusiasts for an episode I have entitled Ripper in the Making. So, for this month, for the bonus episode, we're off back to the 1980s to the city of Leicester, the county town of Leicestershire in the East Midlands of the UK, for the case that I've chosen. And what else but a savage case of senseless murder? one that although it's often overlooked and is a tale that i've not heard myself covered on any of the other shows has become topical again only in recent weeks so watch this space as it very possibly will be covered by others so i best get in there first then hadn't i the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so as ever please use your discretion whilst you're listening in guys with that in mind Grab yourself a cuppa or do whatever you do when you're listening in and please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a bonus Patreon episode I've entitled Ripper in the Making. So as I said, we're off way back to 1983 to begin our tale. Were you even in existence back in 1983? I was just five years old myself and looking back because we love a stat here after all. A memorable time as it was the year that Fraggle Rock first aired. The 3D printer was invented by Chuck Hull. Michael Jackson introduced the Moonwalk and the Thriller video first aired on MTV. The first Hooters restaurant opened. Love to go to Hooters. And it was the year of films such as Sudden Impact, Scarface and Return of the Jedi. My favourite stat that I found that it was the year that the band Kiss first appeared in public without makeup. Well officially as kiss you know not just they weren't just born black and white faces or nothing but more to do with the circles that we're here for however that year in true crime the Jules Rimet trophy was stolen for the second time the Brinks map Bullion robbery happened and the largest prison escape in British history occurred when 38 IRA prisoners escaped at gunpoint from the Maid's prison in Northern Ireland you never know What tales may come to the enthusiast at a future date, is all I can say. The place we're off to is Leicester, county town of Leicestershire in the East Midlands, and the 13th most populated area in the UK. Facts about Leicester include that it hosts the largest Diwali celebrations outside of India, it was the first city to have a local radio station, and it's the home of Walker's Crisps. Famous people to hail from there include England's most capped player and its third highest goalscorer, Peter Shilton and Gary Lineker, respectively, the elephant man himself, Joseph Merrick, national treasure, Sir David Attenborough, who's been to more countries than bloody Covid has, and my favourite, former footballer, sports presenter, and now rambling conspiracy nut job, David Icke. I always remember a couple once seriously tried to convert me to his ramblings when I was stood behind them all night in the queue for Record Store Day a couple of years ago and I was just like, oh, will you just piss off and shut up? I just want to stand quiet while I wait for me charlatans albums. Will David Icke help me get them? He didn't help me in the end and I still got them. People are lizards, my arse. Leicester was also the home to 33-year-old Caroline Osborne, a pet beautician who had since 1976 ran her own business, Clipper Pet, an animal grooming parlour, from her city home at 107 Danvers Road. Although Caroline was separated from her musician husband Gary, them splitting at the beginning of 1982, it hadn't been on poor terms, it was a mutual decision that they'd come to, and although he'd since moved down to the south of England to work, they still got on very well with one another. Since her split with Gary, Caroline had had no steady boyfriend or romantic relationship of note, but did have a number of male friends that she saw on a social basis, alongside her regular female friends. She enjoyed her work and took great pride in it, and as a result had made the business a resounding success, having more than 700 regular customers. Caroline was a private and quiet person by nature, but nevertheless led a full and active life and still only 33 seemed to have a bright future ahead of her and that future caroline decided was to be a new life in kenya she had holidayed there on safari with a friend in november of the previous year and had fallen in love with it so much so that she decided to make a new life for herself there to do this and thinking that kenya is the type of place that it's always useful if you can fly had begun taking flying lessons, although the private natured Caroline hadn't told anyone that she was doing so. She'd also placed a house and business up for sale to fund a move with an advert in the local paper reading Poodle parlour and centrally heated house for sale, business as going concern, 18,500 for quick sale, along with a contact number. On the evening of Friday, the 29th of July, 1983, at about 6.30pm Caroline set off dog walking in Aylstone Meadows some 8.8 hectares of open space that make it Leicester's largest nature reserve with one of her own dogs, a black Labrador named Tammy and a crossbred brindle coloured Labrador cross of the same name belonging to a neighbour. Caroline would regularly do this as her neighbour was infirm and indeed usually she'd have three dogs with her for her daily walks the two Tammies, plus Caroline's own other dog, a fiercely protective German shepherd named Gemma. However, on that Friday in question, Gemma had not accompanied them for an early evening walk, as she was lame at the time following an injury, and so had been left at home. Later that evening, approaching darkness, Tammy the Black Labrador returned alone to the corner property of number 107, on the junction of Danvers Road and Lambert Road in Leicester, where Caroline lived in the rear and upstairs of, and ran her business from the front rooms. Of the neighbour's dog, Tammy, there was no sign. Caroline's neighbours heard both Tammy and Gemma howling mournfully and distressed, and realising that something was wrong, eventually contacted police. A cursory search of the area that Caroline normally walked her dogs down was carried out by police, along the footpaths and snickets that skirt the River Soar which runs through Alestone Meadows. But in the absence of light, nothing was found that evening. At first light the following morning, Saturday the 30th of July, the search was resumed, and this time utilising more officers and the use of the dog section, the disappearance of the young woman given gravity as it was so out of character for her. At 10.30am, one of the dog handlers, Police Constable David Warsop, was directing his dog down a path in the meadows leading to an area known as Pebble Beach, when his dog raised its head and suddenly shot off across a large expanse of burnt grass, heading towards a part of it that had been untouched by the fire and was still waist-high. Heading after his dog, PC Warsop parted the tufts of long grass where his dog was stopped, furiously barking, and made a horrific discovery lying on her back some 15 feet down an embankment that was screened by the tall grass was the body of caroline osborne tammy the brindle retriever was still guarding her walker and would not let either pc warsop or his dog approach the body tammy's owner was fetched from her home in danvers road and attended the scene where the dog immediately came to her when called so with police now able to get near to the body an examination could begin they found that caroline had been viciously stabbed to death in a frenzied attack and was fully clothed although curiously her hands feet and ankles were bound together with strong twine there was no evidence of any or any attempted sexual assault to caroline and she'd not been robbed either her handbag lay nearby intact and unopened although she'd not been beaten tufts of her hair had been hacked away hacked off with the same knife that had stabbed her seven ferocious blows, five times to the neck and twice to the chest. There were also other marks to the body that suggested the killer had struck her with a knife, but shallowly, perhaps torturing her. Lying near the body also was a folded piece of paper that when unfurled, depicted a strange collage of hand-drawn satanic symbols. The main decipherable one being a pentagram in a circle a murder investigation began spearheaded by detective superintendent alan stagg and alongside a fingertip search of the area where caroline's body was found swabs were taken from both of the tammies from their coats and collars in the hope of finding specks of blood or forensic evidence a large area around the river saw was sealed off And a fingertip inch by inch search of the undergrowth within began, looking for a discarded murder weapon, whilst police divers took to work scouring the riverbed itself. Investigators searching the area where the body was discovered found a heart shaped pendant on a fine silver chain very close to the scene, and also the wooden handle of a kitchen knife, which, although the murder weapon hadn't been discovered, there was no indication that this wooden one was the handle of the murder weapon meanwhile as a picture began to be built of the murdered woman her likes and interests her friends any romantic attachments to look for a motive house-to-house inquiries began in the streets to the north and west of alestone meadows which encompassed the neighborhood where caroline had lived a man who knew caroline a fellow dog walker named john douglas who lived in the street behind hers wolverton road was able to tell police that the previous evening, only shortly after Caroline had headed out on her own fateful final walk, he'd been returning from a walk with his own dog in the Aylstone Meadows area, when he'd seen Caroline's black Labrador Tammy running free there. Now he was certain it was Caroline's dog, because he knew Caroline to say hi to, and as much as you know and recognise a fellow dog walker, you also recognise their dog, don't you? And John recalled this sighting for two reasons. Tammy was wet through from being in the river, and she was by herself, the normally conscientious and responsible Caroline being nowhere to be seen. Tammy had come up to him and his dog, but John had sent her away, thinking that she must just have run off from Caroline, and the dog had run off. By three hours later, Tammy had made her way home to Danvers Road, where she'd howled until concerned neighbours had contacted police. A psychologist who held degrees in animal behaviour accredited from Hull University and the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Roger Mugford, said that following the murder, the dogs, who he described as highly evolved social animals, had acted in a display of cooperative and intelligent teamwork, saying, It is quite consistent for there to be a clear form of understanding between them that one dog should stay with its master or mistress whilst the other should go for help now which it does really doesn't it so all of these lassie films where the dog runs to old mick or farmer jim whoever it is and it's like woof or what's that little billy's fallen down a well and broken his leg and his arm woof woof fetch help and bring a knotted rope with you woof yeah i'm right on it i'll tell you what i'll never ever diss that again i really won't it was the belief of dr mugford that because neither of the dogs had been harmed in the attack and that no one had reported hearing any screams or sounds of dogs fighting or in distress that Caroline had likely known her killer and the attack was so sudden that she wouldn't have had any time to cry out because the dogs may have known the killer they would not have sensed any threat if this had been the case and so would not have barked when the killer fled an appeal poster was created and issued to the public which is reproduced as part of a series of posts that should also be up now via patreon for you guys to have a look at and at a press conference held on monday the 1st of august detective superintendent stagg appealed for anyone who'd been in the alestone meadows area on the night of the murder who may have either seen caroline or a black labrador running loose to come forward a description of her was issued attractive auburn haired wearing faded blue denim jeans blue trainers and a red and white halter neck t-shirt and he told the gathered media this is a highly serious incident and we must catch this person this killer could easily strike again women and girls should not head out into lonely spots on their own and there were parts of the area where Caroline had died that were very remote indeed As the largest nature reserve in the city of Leicester, as we said, Aylstone Meadows lies between the Grand Union Canal section of the River Soar and an off-linking channel of the river, the River Byam, which rejoins the Soar just after flowing under Brawnstone Lane East. It's a massively popular place with sportspersons, canal boaters, fitness enthusiasts, walkers and ramblers. Though I don't really know the difference between them. I was just trying to get the word count off here. Ramblers, I imagine, always have a pole with them, drink real ale and read the telegraph or something. And of course, it's a massively popular dog walking area. So on a warm July evening, it was estimated that there would be upwards of 250 to 300 people in the popular area where Caroline lost her life. One of them was her killer. Police were also anxious to talk to a number of individuals who had cropped up during inquiries who'd been seen in the area on the day of the murder. One was a male of about 30 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches tall and unshaven, with dark brown collar length hair, who was wearing a black polar neck jumper, a long sleeved sweater and dark trousers, and who'd been seen with a pair of gloves hanging out of his rear pocket. The man had been remembered because his attire was quite surprising for a scorching hot July day. It was nearly 80 degrees Fahrenheit back on that July evening and anyone dressed like that must have been hotter than a badger's arsehole, mustn't they? Another man who was sought was described as being 5 feet 8 inches tall, with dark wavy hair and said to be clean shaven and good looking and a third sought was a tall youth of about 16 years of age who'd been seen sitting on a bridge near to pebble beach throwing stones into the water but the most crucial sighting came from a woman who at six fifty p.m on the evening of the murder had been in alestone meadows and from across the canal a distance away saw a woman that may possibly have been caroline being chased by a man although the witness was too far away to get a better description of the two now, despite a mass appeal and police managing to trace and interview almost 300 people who'd been in the area on the night of the murder, nothing was forthcoming that would identify any of these described. Despite this large number of people spoken to, no one was found who had made a confirmed sighting of Caroline walking her dogs that evening. No one had seen her, except for her killer. At the inquest into Caroline's death, Examining pathologist Dr. Clive bush revealed that she'd been stabbed a total of ten times, causing catastrophic wounds to her neck, arms, and chest. There were no signs or marks to the body that suggested that Caroline had put up a struggle against a killer, and that the wounds on her chest had been most likely inflicted when Caroline had been in a standing position. Tests performed on the ligatures that bound her feet and ankles indicated that she'd most likely been tied up following her death why had the killer done this after the murder the coroner mr michael chapman recorded a verdict of unlawful killing adding it almost certainly must have been someone she knew who killed her but a look at caroline's life proved fruitless also it was thought that there may be something that may stand out a suitor that she'd rebuffed and who wouldn't take no for an answer or a long-standing row over something with someone, something, anything, that may point police in the direction of someone with a possible motive for such a crime. Her estranged husband Gary was spoken to immediately as the prime suspect, but was also alibied immediately and was ruled out of the inquiry. As well as Caroline's distraught relatives and friends, her former workmates, casual acquaintances, even the many customers who used Clipper Pet were all spoken to, and not one of these could even hazard a guess about anyone who would possibly wish Caroline any harm or for any reason. Indeed, the picture that emerged was of a kind and sensitive, fierce animal lover, and tributes to the quiet yet well-liked young woman began to flow in. Caroline's first employer, a woman named Mary Tuckey, who owned and ran the White House boarding kennels in the town of Coalville, where Caroline had first started working after leaving school, told the leicester mercury newspaper it is a terrible terrible tragedy terrible because she was such a kind person she was a quiet girl but extremely loving she stayed here with us for nine months and was a great help to me because my husband was ill at the time another marion lovelace of the groomers association i hope that badge has got a dog on it for it please say that it does Said. I called on Caroline just a few days before her death, and I was left highly impressed by her. She was kind and sympathetic in her nature, it's a real crying shame. Now there were no end of testimonies like this. People would come forward and allay to Caroline's good nature, how she'd walk neighbours' dogs to help them out, how she would undercharge elderly customers of hers, and would transport their dogs to and from Clipperpet free of charge. A senior officer on the case summed up all of these by saying that Caroline was an honest, decent, industrious young woman, and added, This makes the crime all the more wicked and baffling. The police investigation continued at an intense pace for some time following the murder, with reportedly some 15,000 people being spoken to over its course. 80 arrests had been made on suspicion for further questioning before each had been released and reportedly one person had been spoken to some 17 times but nothing was forthcoming and each was eventually ruled out of the investigation now although any publicity concerning this investigation is hard to come by i could find the best part of bugger all when i was researching for the episode It was, however, a year later reconstructed for the second ever episode of a fledgling show that had the idea of showing accounts of crimes to the wider public to see if they could help. Perhaps they might recognise a face or a description, who knows. The programme was, of course crime watch uk it went on to be a massive success and was directly responsible for being the key to solving such crimes as the abduction and murder of toddler james bulger and the murder of little sarah payne and the exploits of the one-legged train spotter himself michael sams who we met way back in series two in the show's first trilogy and then the bbc bugged about with its proven workable effective format and made it shit and then decided that it needed to spend all of its BBC cash on glitzy bellends swinging each other about and being judged for it, or endless cooking shows or dead enders, and they axed Crime Watch. Well done, BBC, you fucking idiots. So while it was still on, when it was still proper good and shit your pants scary, the murder of Caroline Osborne was reconstructed on Crime Watch UK which aired on thursday the 12th of july 1984 the reconstruction highlighted what was known about caroline's final movements and detailed numerous lines of inquiry that police wanted to follow up detective superintendent stagg made a televised appeal for these for the owner of a blue van that was not caroline's but some 80 people had seen her using to come forward there were also appeals about the two men that were described on the Leicestershire Police Appeal poster who'd been seen with Caroline on a number of occasions at Clipperpet, and crucially at about 6.50pm on the day of the murder the witness in Aylstone Meadows who'd reported seeing from some distance off a woman that could quite possibly have been Caroline being chased by this man although as we said the witness was too far away for a further description of him to be offered. Now a link to the crime watch reconstruction that details Caroline's last movements is available in the episode show notes. So although the police received some 30 calls to the studio and a further 50 to the incident room at Wigston police station following the broadcast every lead that was suggested as a result of these calls was investigated thoroughly but petered out. It was frustrating for police and it came on the back of a difficult year for the Leicestershire force, as Caroline's was the third high-profile murder that had come across their patch within the year, and was, at the time, unsolved. There'd been the body of five-year-old Caroline Hogg discovered, abducted from Edinburgh and dumped in a lay-by near Twycross, the handiwork of a monster, who we shall meet at a later date and time on the regular show, and the rape and murder of schoolgirl Linda Mann, Whose sad case we have already looked at, and whose killer we've already met way back when in series one of the show in the episode Code of a Killer. Before it had been on Crime Watch, however, willing to cover every angle, in January 1984 it was decided to call in a psychologist, one of the first uses of offender profiling in the UK. And the psychologist was our old friend Paul Britton. We've met him a few times this series of the regular show throughout maniac and we've met him a couple of times in past series also not at the time Britton had never worked on a police case before it was his first and after visiting the incident room obtained copies of the crime scene photographs and statements over the next few days began drawing a psychological picture of the person responsible for caroline's murder that ran to several points with reasoning behind which I'll reproduce here britain deduced that this had clearly been a premeditated crime the bindings and knife brought to the scene along with the drawing of a pentagram suggested a certain degree of planning caroline a fit and active woman had also been apprehended tied up and then attacked all without anyone hearing his screams in a public place at a busy time yet the very choosing of this public place suggested a certain lack of sophistication also why not choose somewhere more private where a killing doesn't have to be over in a matter of minutes say why not attack her at home it suggested a killer that wasn't known to caroline although she may have been known to him perhaps playing part of his masturbatory fantasies it was a crime with a clear sexual motive despite the absence of physical sexual assault the murder instead showing evidence of a more extreme deviant sexuality at work. In Caroline's death, the bindings and use of a knife suggested a killer whose sexual desires and fantasies tended to feature extreme sexual aggression against women, and that would closely mirror the scene that detectives found at Aylstone Meadows. This would have been rehearsed time and time again in his mind beforehand, before fantasy crossed over into reality and he'd acted it out despite the imagery found on the paper the pentagram britain suggested was drawn earlier and left behind at the scene merely because the killer wanted to rationalize the deviant urges he had to control and murder a woman and by making the scene appear as though it was some sort of ritual sexual sacrifice to some bloody god or another it gave his horrendous actions a purpose to him if you like If it had truly been a murder committed with black magic overtones as a motive, then surely there would have been more of a sense of theatre and preparation. Slaughtered animals, perhaps. Candles, or feathers, or positioned stones. Think back to Colin Stagg and his weird altar and his gloss-painted pentacle on his carpet. That kind of thing, you know. The killer was a male at the younger end of the spectrum, in his mid-teens to early twenties. He was likely to be a loner, sexually immature, and having had very few, if any, girlfriends. This is this wasn't through lack of want, you understand, but because he wouldn't have the necessary social skills to begin these. He would probably live at home with a parent or parents, most likely very close to the scene, if not at the time, then certainly at some point in the recent past. He'd managed to intercept, restrain, and murder Caroline then disappear from the busy Aylstone Meadows area without anyone being drawn to seeing someone legging it or being suspicious of his demeanour. This suggested someone knowledgeable, comfortable and confident in his surroundings. It was a place that he knew well. He would be physically strong and athletic, again evidenced in the way he efficiently overpowered, restrained and murdered Caroline, the bonds and the force used to kill her. The inability for this man to verbally express himself suggested it'd be difficult for him to hold down a clerical or a supervisory role. Instead, if he was employed, he'd more likely be a manual worker, employed in the sort of job that demands dexterity, very possibly one that involved the use of sharp knives to do, indicating his comfort with them. His sexual fantasies involved violence and would be fed by pornography, books, videos, and posters most of these involving violence. There would also be evidence at the suspect's home of a strong interest in knives and weapons. Because no murder weapon had been found, the wooden kitchen handle had by that time been ruled out, it was possible that Caroline's killer had a degree of forensic awareness. Of course, he could equally have treasured the knife that he'd used to kill Caroline as a precious artifact to him, in which case it would be kept close and would be another important masturbatory tool to him, wherever I. although it may equally have been done as part of the goading and degradation that had been inflicted upon her. The experience had given him the ultimate thrill, although the evidence of immaturity at the scene, plus the estimated youth of the killer suggested that this was his first killing, this person was likely to attack and possibly kill again when the euphoria of caroline's murder began to diminish and plateau for him pretty grim eh now as we've said this is back at the end of 1983 profiling although it was being used i take it many of you guys have watched and read mind hunter it wasn't commonplace certainly not regarded as the useful investigative tool that it is today Most officers, I'm sure, thought it was just a load of old bollocks and about as useful as an ash tree on a motorbike, still being of the old, well, we'll solve this by knocking on doors and having endless fags inside brigade, you know. Whether these psychological pointers were given the weight they suggested and used to narrow down the list of suspects, who knows, but in the event Caroline's killer was not identified, with the final point in the list, whether it was regarded or not, having to be echoing in the thoughts of detectives this person was likely to attack and possibly kill again and then almost two years after caroline's shortly after 4 p.m on the afternoon of saturday the 27th of april 1985 another murder happened six miles from the scene of caroline osborne's murder although it was in a completely different area of the city and there was some difference between the ages and physical descriptions of the victims it was almost as though caroline's murder could have been a template for it 21 year old Lester nurse amanda Weedon had spent that saturday lunchtime shopping with her fiance clifford eversfield and the couple were happy and excited especially jubilant that day as they were looking forward to collecting the keys for their new home on the Monday morning, ahead of their wedding day on july the twenty seventh. There was still very much to do in preparation for both, and Amanda had spent the majority of her spare time when she wasn't working in her role as a recently qualified nurse, at Leicester's Groby Road Hospital, planning for both a new home and her wedding assisted by her mother Catherine. In fact, Only the previous day, she'd spoken to Catherine three times in the afternoon about wedding invitations. In the early Saturday afternoon, after kissing Amanda goodbye, Clifford left her in town and headed off to nearby Whetstone to watch the local football team of which he was the manager, arranging to collect Amanda from the nurse's home near the hospital where she lived at the time, ahead of them attending a party later that evening. Amanda finished her shopping and then went and visited a friend of hers at her home in Amadis Road, on the Beaumont Lay's estate, staying here until about 3.15pm. When she left here, she headed to Martin McCall's newsagent in Beaumont Lay's shopping centre, where she was remembered by a greeting card at 3.40pm by the shop assistant who served her, and the till roll could confirm this. From here, she would have headed back towards the nurse's home, a walk that she was familiar with and felt comfortable enough doing in an area she knew and which took her from the Beaumont Lay's estate in a westerly direction and ultimately along a tree-lined footpath known in the vicinity as Chantry Lane which runs alongside Gilroy Cemetery before heading onto the main Groby Road very near to the hospital. 30 minutes after she'd set off, the body of 21-year-old Amanda just three months short of being married to Clifford, two days before collecting the keys for her first home, was discovered by a teenage girl walking home towards the Beaumont Leys estate. She lay sprawled, heavily bloodstained underneath a hedgerow on the lonely tree lined footpath very close to a large red brick building, a residential psychiatric care home called the Chantry. Although the resident physician there, doctor Ki Hatai Han, Was summoned by the distraught teenage girl and tried to revive Amanda, it was in vain. Ambulance staff who arrived a short time later could do nothing, and Amanda was pronounced dead on arrival when she arrived at Groby Road Hospital. A result of the 37 times she'd been stabbed in the neck, the chest, and the thigh. Her shocked fiance was to discover his wife to be's death when he arrived to collect her for the party that evening. Can you imagine? You just can't even imagine it, can you? At a press conference held on the Monday morning, the officer leading the murder hunt, Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker, revealed that there was no sign of any sexual assault to Amanda. But her handbag, containing a purse with a small amount of money, just £20, and her cash card had been taken, although the cash card had later been discovered in the parallel sprawling Gilroy Cemetery. He told the press that both the footpath on Chantry Lane and Gilroy Cemetery were the haunts of some unsavoury, shall we say, characters. With the footpath in particular being a notorious spot for flashers, and the cemetery, meanwhile, attracting vandals and glue sniffers, was one of these responsible for Amanda's murder detective superintendent baker also appealed for anyone who'd seen a man in the beaumont lays or groby road area on the day of the murder possibly heavily bloodstained to come forward they already had a sighting of someone that they wanted identified and ruled out of the inquiry for a member of staff from the chantry had come forward on the evening of the murder to report that just before the teenage girl came raising the alarm that she'd discovered amanda At about 4pm she'd looked through one of the upstairs windows at the home and had seen a shadowy figure lurking about on the footpath. By the following day a description of what was very likely the same man a person who'd been spotted at 4.05pm just yards from where Remanda's body was found leaving the footpath had been issued and appeared in the press. He was described as being very tall wearing dark coloured clothing that was possibly olive green or khaki in colour And Detective Superintendent Baker stated, If anyone has seen this man, they should get in touch with us urgently. If he was legitimately walking down the footpath, then he should come forward and be eliminated from the inquiry. He also commented that they had not yet ruled out a connection between Amanda's killing and the as yet unsolved murders of Linda Mann in November 1983, who'd also been attacked on a footpath near the grounds of the hospital. And of course, of Caroline Osborne back in July of the same year. So, with this in mind, Paul Britton was once again consulted, and as soon as he'd heard the details of the killing, as well as seeing the crime scene photographs, despite the difference in age of the victims, was in no doubt that the killer of Caroline Osborne had struck again. He considered that this time the killer had taken a greater risk due to the location. And spent less time on the killing as there'd been no binding and no symbolism. It was opportunistic, which suggested that it was less likely that he knew Amanda, but something, some psychological pointer, had attracted her to him at the point he was most aroused. The fact that the footpath where Amanda had been attacked and killed skirted Gilroy Cemetery, the resting place of Caroline Osborne, was also not lost on the psychologist perhaps caroline's killer had been visiting her grave it was certainly the type of situation that would have heightened any arousal in the killer and suitably wound up buzzing he may have come out of the cemetery knife in his possession and came upon amanda whedon he pressed the detectives the earlier points that he'd raised about the killer young male living in the area with parents manual worker in a capacity impossibly involving knives a loner physically fit and athletic interest in occult paraphernalia and pornography of the violent degrading to women type and as detectives were trawling through local records of known flashers and sex offenders in the area the psychological description could be used to narrow this pool of suspects further down if they could match the psychology to the physical description boom it was likely they'd have their killer now a lady who lived on the Beaumont Lays estate Mrs Olive Weir heard this description appealed and thought to herself that the man described sounded very much like her 19-year-old 6 foot 5 inch 15 stone grandson Paul who also lived nearby with his parents but was forever in the Beaumont Lays area as he used her garage as a home fitness studio equipping it with free weights and a fixed punch bag suspended from the ceiling She mentioned this to her grandson when he called around and urged him to go to the police and rule himself out of the inquiry which he eventually did on the Wednesday, four days after the murder. From the moment that Paul Bostock walked into Blackbird Road police station to rule himself out, the solution to two of the savage unsolved murders that Leicestershire police had on their books began presenting itself. As detectives spoke to Bostock, His story made them more and more suspicious. Although he wasn't cocky or aggressive, he was nervous when spoken to and kept contradicting himself when he was explaining his movements on the previous Saturday. As they were talking to him, it began dawning on them just how much Bostock fitted the psychological profile that Paul Britton had drawn up. He was in the estimated age range of the killer was devoted to physical fitness having both an interest in martial arts which he trained at twice weekly and played junior rugby for west leicester a natural forward due to his height he lived in the area of beaumont lays in blakesley walk with his parents very close to the scene of amanda's murder and up until eight months before had lived six miles north of there with them in walton street four streets away from caroline osborne's grooming salon flipper pet. now you'd be having that already wouldn't you okay Bostock also worked as a meat processor in a local plant which of course involved the regular use of knives in his work when officers searched his home on Blakesley Walk what they discovered there convinced them that back in custody at the station they had the killer of both Amanda Whedon and Caroline Osborne at least The murder of Linda Mann was ultimately ruled out as being unconnected to these, as Linda had been raped and strangled, and this didn't fit the modus operandi of Caroline or Amanda's murders. As well as posters and drawings of murders, hand-drawn satanic symbols similar to that found at the scene of Caroline's murder, and scenes of ritual torture and bondage, there was also found a large amount of violent comics and magazines, and a collection of fearsome and extremely sharp knives a gun and martial arts weapons such as a ninja throwing stars and a set of rice flails but the crown piece of evidence a 1984 day-to-day planner diary with the very telling giveaway phrase anniversary one year written across the columns for the 28th and 29th of july of that year exactly a year to the day after the death of caroline osborne following a series of interviews the strategy of which to build up a rapport designed to get to the truth as though it was in the center of a series of concentric circles as was described in his book the jigsaw man was drafted by paul Britton. paul bostock was to eventually confess that he'd met and killed caroline osborne in ailestone meadows back in 1983 though he could or would not explain why he'd periodically visited a grave in Gilroy cemetery over the ensuing months and had been doing so on the afternoon of the 27th of april when he saw the young amanda whedon as he left the cemetery and had struck when asked why he'd chosen amanda all bostock could say in response was because she had red shoes on on thursday 2nd of may 1985 paul bostock appeared at leicester magistrates court charged with the murder of amanda whedon to which he made no plea he appeared at the same court 28 days later where on the 30th of may 1985 charges relating to the murder of caroline osborne were laid against him also and he was remanded in custody awaiting trial When he came to trial almost a year later on the 4th of June 1986 at Leicester Crown Court he entered a plea of guilty to both of the murders. It emerged at the hearing that back in 1983 Bostock and his family had lived in Walton Street just four streets and less than half a mile away from Clipperpet, where his family dogs were taken to be groomed. Bostock had taken them there himself several times and had each time always been dealt with By the pleasant, kindly natured, and attractive Caroline. He had, because he'd lived in the general area, been spoken to by police investigating her murder in 1983 no less than three times, but his alibi that he'd simply been at home on the evening of the 29th of July was accepted at the time, supported by his unsuspecting parents who mistakenly believed their son, and he was ruled out of the inquiry. This was despite the fact that Bostock bore a striking resemblance to the youth who was appealed for in the initial inquiry, the one who'd been seen sat on a bridge throwing stones into the river near to Pebble Beach. Mr. David Farrer QC, counsel for the Crown, told the court that both murders were similar in their ferocity and appeared to be premeditated with a hint of sexual sadism. A fitness fanatic who was a devoted bodybuilder Paul Bostock was such a sexual sadist who had for a number of years borne an unhealthy fascination for knives, horror, the occult and black magic and laboured the fact that at age just 16 Bostock was so unhealthily into these that they'd manifested themselves into murder. Caroline Osborne was the unlucky victim. he had stabbed her then fastened her feet and hands and had then goaded and taunted her as other wounds and marks to her body had suggested Before viciously returning to stab it further to death. Following the murder, he'd casually jogged home, and no one had reported anything out of the ordinary with him. Bostock followed all press releases concerning the case closely, visited the scene as often as he could, and had even periodically visited Caroline's grave as she was buried in Gilroy Cemetery. Almost two years later, just moments after one of these graveside visits, Bostock had attacked Amanda Whedon on a footpath near to the hospital where she worked. There was suggestion that, like with Caroline, Bostock had taunted Amanda also. Again, the wounds and marks to her body depicted this. Before stabbing her in a frenzy thirty-seven times, Bostock had told police that he had approached Amanda Whedon and attacked her when she'd rebuffed him, but he could not repeat what had been said. Indeed he claimed that he could not remember either of the murders clearly but he'd been seen by a number of people as he disposed of the knife he'd used to kill amanda which was found a few days after the murder in gilroy cemetery where a cash card was also found defending counsel mr anthony smith qc told the court that one of the most frightening aspects of the case was that none of the many doctors who'd examined bostock that whilst he was on remand had been able to get anywhere remotely near why he'd committed i quote these unspeakable things conversely he told the court since 1983 paul bostock had been involved in a correspondence by letter with a girl that he'd met on a family holiday to the seaside tracy a surname has never been revealed to her he'd always been a gentle and kind soul the last person to do this type of thing Yet he'd written to her whilst on remand and admitted the crimes, telling her In those few moments I have destroyed everything not only that I tried to be but I have killed two innocent women. I've ruined my victim's family's lives, my family's life and the life I'd planned for us together. I cannot look my parents in the eye, I cannot face myself and I can hardly look at the detectives. I think that I'm an animal who deserves to be locked away." Prevented from ever being allowed to walk the streets again. If I'm able to do that to a fellow human, I should be locked away for life. If I suffer for a hundred years, I will still deserve more. And indeed, comments from almost everyone who knew Bostock were unanimous. He was the last kind of person who would do anything like this. It was totally against his nature. Testimonies were read to the court from several people. Bostock's former headmaster from Westcote Secondary School described him as a nice boy, a popular and conscientious worker, adding he is the most unlikely character to have been involved in anything like this. Whilst neighbours of the Bostock family and workmates of Paul's all used one phrase to describe the young man that they knew he was a gentle giant. His former karate instructor Colin Underwood said of him he was polite and placid sometimes people lose their temper if someone accidentally hurts them but paul would not he was always in control of himself whilst his coach at west leicester rugby union youth team said he dislikes aggression and violence and it was very difficult to get some fire into his belly but however much it mystified them and went against the character of the person they thought they knew the fact of the matter was that poor Bostock had confessed that he had killed two women and had pleaded guilty, a gentle giant with a dark side to his personality. On the 4th of June 1986, passing sentence on Bostock, the judge, Mr Justice Tucker, told the court that Bostock was, I quote, a very dangerous young man indeed, and then sentenced him to life imprisonment for the murder of Amanda Whedon, as well as detaining him at Her Majesty's pleasure for the murder of Caroline Osborne, a crime that had taken place when Bostock was still in the eyes of the law a minor. Due to Bostock's age, length of time he must serve could not be placed by the judge, but I was able to discover that this was set later and a minimum tariff of 20 years and one day. With that, Bostock was taken away to begin his life sentence. Following sentencing, one of the detectives who'd worked on the murders when speaking about Bostock said he is very dangerous and completely unstable if he was still on the loose i'm sure we'd be searching for another yorkshire ripper and that doesn't bear thinking about does it one shy talk like that is more than enough so since 1985 Bostock has been incarcerated and is now 53 years of age by this year serving his sentence in an open prison, Majesty's Prison Sudbury in Ashbourne in Derbyshire. In August 2020, reports emerged that following spending 35 years in prison, the parole board have reached the decision that Paul Bostock is now safe enough to be released on licence. He's already been allowed out from prison several times on unaccompanied day trips, part of any prisoner's preparations for eventual full release. And the Parole Board's report concludes that he's engaged with the psychological treatment he's undertaken in prison since he admitted both of the murders and was given the mandatory life sentences in June 1986. A Parole Board spokesperson confirmed that it had now directed Bostock's release, albeit on a tag and with limitations, and said its decisions were solely focused on the risk a prisoner would pose to the public and whether that risk was manageable, saying, offenders are released on temporary license only once they pass a thorough risk assessment they are then subject to strict conditions which 99% of offenders abide by and those who do not face return to a closed prison now though there was no reported response about this from caroline osborne's family who've long held their own silence and refused to comment publicly on her murder amanda whedon's family balked at this decision believing 35 years was far too soon for bostock to be back on the streets and that he would still pose a very credible threat to the public the family led by her father horace whedon until horace sadly passed away aged 92 in march this year has been vocal in their opposition to bostock's bids for freedom over the past few years Amanda's elder brother Martin told the BBC that Bostock should stay in prison until he was, I quote, an OAP lacking the strength to reoffend. And that the family intended to appeal the parole board's decision, adding, They say they can put him back into the community with certain conditions, give him a GPS electronic tag and put him in a bail hostel. They are painting this picture of them keeping an eye on him, but we just don't believe it would be safe he's still only 53, he's 6 foot 5 inches tall, and a bodybuilder who does martial arts, so a GPS tag isn't going to protect anyone. We intend to appeal, we are going to have a go. I believe most people deserve a second chance, but not him. People will say, of course you'd say that, but I'd ask them, do you want a guy who can stab someone 37 times in 10 minutes, after killing another woman?" to come live alongside you i just don't believe you can ever fix a mind like that a man who did what he did the whedon family did ultimately appeal the decision to release bostock and martin whedon gave an impact statement on behalf of his family at a recent remotely held parole hearing over the telephone due to the covid crisis although he had hoped to have been there in person to face Bostock. In part the impact statement read Amanda was a special person who had everything to live for and was very committed to her career as a nurse something she'd pursued as a teenager working at weekends in a local care home. On a personal level and within the family we cannot ever think about the amount of fear and terror that Amanda was put through at the time of her murder. The events of that day have continued to impact the family in many ways. The cancelling of her Listening to my mother having to do that is a memory I shall personally never forget. Also, not forgetting the poor shop assistant taking the call, who was also reduced to tears. We don't want another family to go through what we've been through because of this man. However, in September of this year, just a couple of weeks before I wrote and researched this episode, the Ministry of Justice confirmed this appeal did not meet their requirements and Bostock's release has been approved. Following the decision, Martin Weedon told ITV News, We just felt frustrated. It felt like our appeal was pointless. In our view, this was the system just going through the motions. The only solace in all this is that our father, Horace, never had to hear this news. We don't think about Amanda every day, but not a week goes by without something reminding us of her. We try to remember the happy bits and put the part involving Bostock to the side if we can. In our opinion, this guy is still a danger to society. It only took a few minutes to do something to a total stranger to him, my sister, and we fear this could happen to another family, and we don't want another family to go through what we've been through. As a family, we can never forgive him. These were horrendous crimes. Now the family had contacted their local MP, Jane Hunt, who had in turn contacted the Justice Minister, Lucy Fraser, who explained the Parole Board's decision in a letter back released to the ITV News. The letter reads as follows. I would firstly like to offer my deepest sympathy to Mr. Weedon and his family for the loss of Amanda in such a senseless and brutal way. It is clear from your correspondence that, understandably, her murder continues to affect him and his family very deeply. As you are aware, Mr Paul Bostock was already being detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure for murder when he was sentenced on the 4th of June 1986 to life imprisonment for Amanda's murder. His tariff was set at 20 years and one day and expired on the 2nd of May 2005. It may be helpful if I explain that the decision to direct the release of an indeterminate sentence prisoner such as Paul Bostock is solely a matter for the parole board Which is independent from government. I would like to assure you that in making its decisions, the Board considers all the available evidence, including the circumstances of the offences and any progress which the prisoner has made in custody, in order to determine the prisoner's current risk of causing serious harm. The Board will direct the release of a prisoner only if it's satisfied that the risk he poses can be managed safely in the community, no matter that his tariff has expired. I should advise that where a panel of the Parole Board directs the release of a prisoner serving a life sentence, it does not mean that the panel has concluded that the prisoner now represents no risk to the public or specified individuals. Rather, the panel considers that the prisoner's risks may be effectively managed in the community, using the controls and license conditions which the National Probation Service has presented to them in the form of a risk management plan. That is, in effect, the statutory test to which the parole board has to have regard once the prisoner has completed his tariff thus a release judgement made by the panel based on an examination of the detailed assessments of qualified staff is that the risk the offender presents is capable of being managed using the measures and controls set out in the mps risk management plan i fully appreciate that mr whedon will be disappointed with this decision and i note his concerns about violent offenders who reoffend i would like to reassure you and mr whedon that all prisoners serving a life sentence including mr bostock will be subject to a series of standard license conditions upon their release as well as further additional conditions to mitigate the particular risks they pose as set out in the parole board decision summary these might include a condition to reside as directed by the supervising officer a no contact condition in an exclusion zone prohibiting the offender from entering areas where the victims live, work or travel too frequently, being subject to electronic monitoring, as well as undertaking such risk reduction work considered necessary. The MPS also work closely with the police under the statutory multi-agency public protection arrangements to manage such offenders in the community. If an offender's behaviour shows signs of escalating risk, their probation officer has the power to recall them to custody and must use it. I would again like to offer my deepest sympathy to Mr. Whedon, and I hope this letter provides some clarification about the Parole Board's decision, as well as reassurance on the measures in place to manage offenders in the community. A letter does bugger all for the families and protect people, though, does it? Although Paul Bostock will remain on parole for the rest of his life, he's now believed to be freed and living at an undisclosed address back on the streets where more than 30 years ago he committed sheer carnage the known crimes also what if this guy had attacked or even killed again sometime in the 21 months between caroline and amanda i truly believe myself looking into the case of paul bostock that a ripper in the making really was stopped there a fitting title for the episode i thought the remorse that he seemed to express through his letters to his unnamed girlfriend are one thing and whilst it is an acknowledgement of his actions i think it smacked more of pity for himself and what he lost it was almost like by throwing himself to the wolves on paper he'd want everyone to feel almost pity for him for the years inside that he had ahead of him almost like oh well fair play he knows the gravity of what he's done yet he never says sorry does he there's no report of Bostock ever expressing remorse to the families of both Caroline or Amanda for his actions and I don't really believe that he was I think the killings defined his life particularly that of Caroline visiting a grave often could be seen as a sign of remorse almost until you consider that he was constantly armed with a knife when he did so as Amanda tragically found out I think he went there because it gave him the ultimate thrill what a place to gloat or you don't even want to think about it do you and not classed as suffering from any mental illness this guy has reportedly spent his entire sentence in a prison environment almost double the minimum tariff it was recommended that he serve so for parole to only come after such time had elapsed grave concerns must have been shared about bostock to keep him incarcerated for so long And he's only finally in the past few years been able to convince the powers that be that he is suitable for release. Now we've heard before on the show of times where they've looked at a person, how he appears to them and said, yeah, let's start easing up on his classification, shall we? Allowing them that much more freedom. And it's gone massively tits up, hasn't it? Think of the cases of Glyn Dix and Peter Bryan, just to name two, and the horrors that they went on to commit after being deemed safe to release. You'd have to hope, and I have the words of the Whedon family from their impact statements, unbelievable that, isn't it? I have them echoing round my mind when I say this, that they did get it right here, and Paul Bostock is suitable for release, and to pick up a semblance of life as a free man and a productive citizen. Otherwise, Bostock is just 54 years of age now. Imagine if during his incarceration, he's kept up the physical fitness. And imagine if the thing that drove him, the compulsion to kill, which reportedly has never been pinpointed, and the root cause never identified by the many psychiatrists to have examined him over the years. Imagine if that hasn't gone away, and it's just lying dormant. All it took last time was the sight of a pair of red shoes, after all and he's had 35 years to think about that. You just have to hope that it doesn't come back, don't you? I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the case of Paul Bostock, which you can do as always through the thread on the Patreon page. Or don't mind at all, get in touch with me wherever you wish to. I'm always happy to shoot the breeze and discuss with you guys anyway. I thank you all once again for joining me here for the bonus episode as well as catching me on the regular enthusiast on a Thursday, Truer Crime Thursday. With that then I've been, I still am and hopefully I still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times and I shall speak to you very very soon. Take care all, cheers for joining me and goodbye for now.